audio podcast. Today on the podcast we have part three in our series, What's So Good About the Good News, where we are looking at the gospel. Today we are looking at a facet of the gospel, how Jesus reaffects the founding of civilization in the cross, and what that means for us as his followers, as people of the cross. Uh, we are going to be closing this with a video that uh, is called A Letter to Isis from People in the Cross. We will have that posted on Facebook and maybe even linked to on our website. So when we get there, you can check that out as well online. So let's go ahead and head to the talk, North Shore Vineyard Church, downtown Covington. Thanks for listening. How many of you in here enjoy a good romantic comedy? Okay. Some of you guys are just lying in church. We know you like when Harry met Sally. Now, here's the thing with the the typical romantic comedy that you would find. um, Have you ever noticed that, that, like, 99% 99% of romantic comedies, I'm talking not about the, the TV variety, but the movie variety, 99% of those things don't have married couples in them. Have you ever noticed that? Because who wants to watch a movie about two people that are just, you know, married? <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> I, I mean, I've come to the point, I realize, you know, but my everyday life, it's, it's kind of boring we, we are much more fascinated by the backstory, aren't we, right? It's, it's like, how the heck are Harry and Sally going to get together? You know, like, we want them to make it. Like, like, we want them to be more than just friends. Oh, my gosh, this is killing me. When is this going to happen, right? Like, that's the buildup. And where does every good romantic comedy end up? When do they stop the film? It's usually at the altar, Right? And, and, and to borrow from a, a Disney phrase, and they lived happily ever after, right? We don't really care about Harry and Sally celebrating their, their 23rd anniversary years down the road. Um, that, that's not something you want to watch a movie about, but you want to watch about the backstory. You know, Dina and I, uh, quite often when we meet other couples and we go out to dinner, um, one, one of our first questions that we ask them is, Hey, how, how'd you guys meet? Let's hear your backstory. Because it's, it's so fascinating hearing where people have come from. If you ever come to our Relate course that Dina and I lead, it's, a, it's kind of a relationship marriage course. Um, in that course, much of what we're sharing from is our backstory. It's like we're, we're still here somehow. <laughs> uh, and this is our backstory. These are the things that we've had to go through. You know, I said a few... few um, weeks ago when we were going the series of Revelation, that one of the, a couple of the big determinator, de- determinators, de- <laughs> determining factors of, of how you will interact with people in this world has to do with the image of God behind your worship, number one, 
and your view of eschatology. Eschatology is a scary word, but it's just where you believe God is taking everything. So if, if, you're, if you believe primarily that God is angry with humanity and he's just going to destroy the world, then you're going to kind of walk around like a jerk, okay? I've, I've seen it. I've been there myself. Um, you're not going to value things because you think that God's just angry. He's going to destroy it all. If you believe that God is, is primarily a God of love and he wants to reconcile people and, and he wants to renew the earth, then, then you're going to walk around with a different disposition as well. But another factor in our lives that, that has a lot of influence with how we even understand God and the world is the backstory. It's the, uh, it's the foundation story. And if you look around the world, all different religions and cultures, they have founding stories or, or origin myths that, that, that give rise to uh, how, how people understand themselves. That's one of my favorite things with superheroes, too. You know, the, the background stories, right? The origin myth. You know, how did Batman, how did he come to be like that? Well, today I want to share some origin stories with you because we're talking about the gospel. And as I said last week, if you were here, the gospel is the good news. It's the announcement that there's something new that has happened that affects the world. And we believe as Christians that the gospel is the announcement that, that in Jesus Christ... The wheels of history have now turned the other direction. Something has happened through the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ through which the world will never be the same place again. This is an announcement of news. It's an actual event that happened. And now our question is, how will we respond in light of that news? So I'm going to cover another aspect of this good news today by looking at some founding stories, founding myths from uh, a couple of different places. So, for our Roman history minute of the lesson today, uh, I, I've, I've pretty much decided, like, if, if I'm going to see check with L, uh, SLU, see if we can get a Roman history credit for uh, attending church. It seems like we talk about Roman history every week, but I want to talk about the founding myth of the city of Rome and, and, and the Roman Empire. So, if, if any of you are familiar with Roman mythology, uh, here we go. This will be familiar territory. So the story begins that Mars, the Roman god of war, impregnated Rhea Silvia, or Ilia, and she gave birth to two sons, Romulus and Remus. Upon their birth, their uncle abandoned them to the wild to die. And this is where it gets a little weird. They're swept away by a river for safekeeping, and then they're fed by woodpeckers, and eventually a she-wolf finds them and adopts them and, and takes care of them until a shepherd and his wife find them and take them in. Now Romulus and Remus, as they grow up in this household with the shepherd and his wife, eventually they get to a point where they're old enough to hear their own backstory. And they find out about their evil uncle who tried to, to have them killed. And so what do they do? They go and kill their uncle. And they, they install the rightful king in the area where they were from. And they were next in line to rule the city of Alba Longa. But these twins, however, they did not want to wait for their inheritance. Rather, they wanted to take things into their own hands and start their own city. Only each one of them wanted to locate the city in a different region. So these two brothers, Romulus and Remus, got in a fight. And Romulus kills Remus. And he goes on to found a city. And this city was called Rome. 
So that's the founding of the Roman Center. Brother kills brother, founds a city. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Around 1500 BC, there's another story that was recorded. Uh, and this story is another founding story. In this story, we have a godlike uh, person named Adam who impregnates his wife Eve. And they have two sons. Now, these sons aren't twins like Romulus and Remus. But their first son, Cain, he was a, uh, a farmer of sorts, an agriculturalist. Abel, his other brother, was uh, a rancher. He was a, a guy that, that worked with livestock. And one day they were coming to God with their offerings, the, the best of their crops and the best of their, their uh, sheep or herd animals. And for some reason... And we're not told why in Genesis, but for some reason, God uh, likes the offering that Abel brings, but gets upset with Cain. And so Cain gets dejected and feels rejected, and he, he goes off, and he's angry, and he gets jealous and angry towards his brother, and invites his brother out into a field one day, and Cain kills Abel. Now, what we find is that God finds Cain, and he says, where's your brother Abel? He says, what? Am I my brother's keeper? <laughs> no, I'm not my brother's keeper. He says, your, blood, your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. What's interesting is that immediately after this happens, what does Cain do? Cain goes east of Eden, and he starts a city. It's, it's interesting that, that anthropologists who study the, the origin myths and stories of different cities and civilizations, they find that, that this story of brother killing brother, of, of an innocent victim being killed at the foundation of, of a city and a civilization, it, it's, it, it happens all over the world. Cities and societies and lives are built, constructed, erected for centuries on the blood of their brothers. And that's the story of humanity, no matter whose version you read. Violence, horror, mercilessness, pride, greed, anger, and unforgiveness. And for centuries, civilizations have tried to fix those problems with more of the same. If we can just oust this leader, things will, will be different. Have you ever seen that? I mean, if you look in the last hundred years, I mean, I remember reading Russian history. If we can just oust the czars, then things will be different. Then the communists take over, and it's just like the czars. And probably one of the greatest bit of wisdom from rock and roll came from the who many years ago. Meet the new boss the same as the old boss. We think that by using these same methods of the world upon which the world is founded, we think that we can change things, but it's just doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. If I can just put this person out of my life, then things will be different. Have you ever felt that way before? I have. I've been in a situation before. I'm like, if this person would just get out of my life, my life would be great. Like, this is the only issue that I have right now. And what happens when that person gets out of your life? It's amazing. Somebody else takes their place. Like, immediately. Like, they're standing in queue. <laughs> I saw you have an opening for somebody annoying. 
like to apply. <laughs> if I can just hold a grudge against this person, then I will have peace. If I can just see my boss get what's coming to them, then I will have peace. I'm not going to ask who's thinking of that. If I can just see this person that's hurt me get hurt, then I'm going to feel better. But you don't, do you? You don't. Some of you thinking that this morning, like, no, really. I mean, no, you won't. You're not going to feel any better. You'll feel better for a minute. A minute. As with all sin, you'll feel better for a minute. But it won't bring peace. Because here's the problem. When we look at sin, when we look at the foundation ideas and civilizations of the world, it's a systemic problem. It's not just a problem of me as an individual. I love the, the term that was coined by the anthropologist Rene Girard. He said, we are interdividuals. Huh? We think we are individuals in this country. Like, I just exist by myself, but we're not. We're interdividuals. We are connected to one another. If you take a human being and you isolate them from human contact, is that person going to grow up to be anything like a human being? We need people in our life. And, and, and when you see somebody die, I mean, one of the hardest things I do, I, you know, in, in a typical year, I lead a lot of funerals. One of the hardest things when somebody dies, it feels like a part of you is dying with them. Why is that? Because a part of you is dying with them in a very real sense. We are our relationships. We don't exist as isolated individuals. And, and, the, and the problems with sin are, are systemic as well. These problems aren't just me and, and, and what I need to do. These problems run in our social networks. They run in our political systems. They run in our neighborhoods. And in order to fix the old system... We need a new system. See, we don't just need a new version of the old system. The old system based on I'm not my brother's keeper. We need a whole new system. We don't need the old system, a new version of the old system of building our empires and our lives on the blood of others. We need a system to be reconfigured. It has to be reestablished. It has to be remade. For the system that is, is pure evil. And it's ugly. When God asked Cain, where is your brother? Cain's response is, am I my brother's keeper? That's not my job. And God says, Yes, you are your brother's keeper. See, this is not an individual sport. This is not every person from them for themselves. And now your brother's blood is calling out from the ground. And it's calling out for vengeance. And that's what blood does. That's what shed blood does. It calls out for vengeance. What is desperately needed is a new normal, a new society, a new paradigm, a new way of living, a new way of experiencing life, a new way of being human. What is needed by humanity is a rescuer, 
a Savior. And that's exactly what the world has been waiting for for thousands of years. For new power to rise up, to defeat, to conquer all the old powers, to shape a new system, a new society. And this is just what we see Jesus doing with his life. When you read the Gospels, it's scandalous. Because Jesus isn't living by the systems and by the mindsets of this world. We may not quite understand it, how scandalous it was that Jesus broke bread with the wrong kind of people. That was scandalous. And Jesus was saying something with every piece of bread he broke with outsiders, with every leper he touched, with every sinner that was on the edge of things that was about to get stoned by the the religious people, Jesus is saying, I am establishing a new society, a new way of living, a new way of being human in this world. And this is what Jesus shows us. He shows us what true humanity can look like. In his death, he shows us what the face of God truly looks like. See, the disciples are, when they, when they are with Jesus, they're actually anticipating a victorious king, aren't they? You know, last week we celebrated the resurrection, but you know, this week the, the Orthodox Church is actually having Palm Sunday. So I want to rewind to Palm Sunday. We'll be in the Orthodox Church for a moment, okay? Palm Sunday... Of, of the week that Jesus would go, of, of Holy Week, that Jesus is going to the crucifixion, the disciples must have been giddy with excitement at the beginning of the week. I mean, imagine yourself in their shoes. These are some redneck hicks from the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, they talk funny. People make fun of them. But they've been hanging around this rabbi, this teacher, this prophet. And over the years of hanging around with him, they've come to see that, that he, they believe that he's actually the Messiah, the one who's going to set things right. Now, Messiah, in their minds, didn't mean somebody that would make sure that they could go to heaven when they died, okay? Messiah, in their minds, meant somebody who would come in and kick butt, I mean, like, really, like, take over the government and run the bad guys out. Somebody like Alexander the Great. Somebody like Caesar. Maybe at least somebody like David, who would run the enemies of Israel out of town with a sword. They were expecting that. And imagine the buildup. You're hanging around Jesus as just a humble fisherman or a tax collector that people hated. And now, for the first time, you got friends. And this thing is, it's, it's, it's just, it's bumping, man. Jesus is, is healing people. You've seen blind people uh, with their sight recovered. You've seen uh, paralytics raised up. You've even seen dead people raised from the dead. You've seen a sack lunch multiplied to feed 1,000 people, I mean 5,000 people. You've seen water turned into wine at a wedding. You've seen Jesus walking on water. You've heard all these amazing teachings on the kingdom of God. And that's just the stuff that you've written down. And when they walk into Jerusalem on the beginning of Holy Week during Passover, it was, a, it was a time where people from all over the Holy Land were coming, making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the time where God heard the cries of his people and he rescued them from Egyptian slavery. 
And just imagine coming into Jerusalem with Jesus. Jesus is riding on the back of a donkey to fulfill a prophecy from Zechariah about the Messiah and the people that are gathered there. The pilgrims from all over, they are laying palm branches down at the feet of Jesus. They're laying their cloaks down. And this is a sign of saying, you're the king. You're it. You're the Messiah. We believe it. Now imagine being a disciple in the midst of that. It's just like, This thing's going to take over any minute. It's going to catch fire. People are going to take up their swords. There's going to be a slaughter. There's going to be a coup d'etat. We're taking over this thing. Imagine with that mindset how horrible it would be to see Jesus crucified on Good Friday. There wasn't nothing good about that Friday, by the way, initially. See, back in that day, nobody wore a cross around their neck for, a, you know, a fashion. <laughs> you didn't wear a cross, to, you know, just to complement the, the blouse you were wearing. The cross was seen as something brutal, humiliating. The, it was seen as the triumph of the powers that be, the Roman Empire, over anybody that stepped out of line. The Romans had a lot of way of killing people, but the cross was was meant to be a billboard to send a message. You mess with Rome, this is what you get. They saved it for political, uh, you know, people who were uh, trying to overthrow the government. And to see Jesus up there, those disciples must have been wondering, what's going on? Where is the mystery? Where is the sacred? Where is the beauty? Where is the rescue that we thought that Jesus was? And then, just before Jesus dies, we see the beauty. We see the sacred. We see the victory. As Jesus, with his dying breath, says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. The writer of Hebrews tells us the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. For where Abel's blood cried out for vengeance, the blood of Jesus cries out for mercy, for peace, forgiveness. The war is over. But make no mistake, this was never a war between God and people. God has never been at war with human beings. Even though humans have often hated God, the war has always been against evil and the dark forces that stand up against God. And how does God conquer these forces of evil? He conquers them using their own weapon. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, to die for the world, that whosoever will believe on Jesus will live and not die. For God did not come to the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. You know what? God is building a city. He's going to build a city. We actually studied about that in the last chapter of Revelation. He's building a city. 
the new Jerusalem, a new society, a new people, a new civilization. And this city is indeed built on blood, but it's not built on the blood of others. God builds a new city with his own blood being poured out. And in this, we once more find out that which is sacred, that which is mysterious, that which is beautiful. See, beauty is an attribute of God, isn't it? And probably the one, one of the most beautiful pictures we can see of God is also one of the most horrible-looking pictures in a way. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, when he announces forgiveness, when he's bloody, beaten, naked, hanging there. I don't know about y'all. If I was Jesus and I had access to legions of angels to smite people, that's the moment I would use the smite card. But Jesus doesn't that because Jesus is founding a new city with foundations, as, as it says in Hebrews, a city with foundations that are eternal. And he founds it in his own blood. And he says, Father, forgive them. Jesus in that moment breaks the cycle of retribution. Jesus in that moment ends the sacrificial system all from that point on. He becomes the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. It is finished. Jesus is building a city, and he's building it with his own blood. Hebrews 12 says this, You have not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind, as the Israelites did on Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was the place that, that Moses got his law, and he was up there in the clouds and the, and the, and the crazy sounds. For they heard an awesome trumpet blast and a voice so terrible that they begged God to stop speaking. Imagine that. They staggered back under God's command. If an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. Moses himself was so frightened at the sight that he said, I am terrified and trembling. No, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering. You have come to the assembly of God's firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself, who is the judge over all things. You have come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven, who have now been made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, and the sprinkled blood, which speaks of forgiveness, instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. Jesus is indeed founding a new city. And for us, this is the good news of the gospel. For us, we, God has not held our sins against us. And if we open up our lives to this Jesus, we can step into healing. We can step into the light. We can step into truth. I want to read one last passage. Because even as our sins are systemic, even as they have woven their way into our relationships, even as they have corrupted our business practices, our governmental practices, even as they have poisoned our relationships with one another, we find in Jesus that there is reconciliation. Ephesians 2 13 through 16, the Apostle Paul writes this You lived in this world without God and without hope. 
But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to them through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. Jesus not only reconciles us to the Father, but now in Jesus, he's destroyed the walls that have separated us from one another. The sinful systems that have, 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 have taken over our relationships and everything in this world. The sinful civilization that was set up by killing brothers, by the blood of innocence, has now been done away with by the cross of Christ. We've been reconciled to God now we're reconciled to one another. Now today, I want to close with something that I saw this week that I believe is a proclamation of the gospel in a very relevant way today. This is called A Letter to Isis from the People of the Cross. This was produced by a group of people in the Middle East. And to me, when I look at the contrast between the cities founded on the blood of brothers versus the city that God is building, formed on the foundation of his own blood, I see a decidedly difference, different way that these two groups of people operate in the world. And today, I want to close with this video, and then we're going to take communion. This video of how this group of people, the people of the cross, how they are sharing the gospel, some of the most horrible uh, groups of people that we can see on this planet today are people who are doing some of the most horrible things. So watch the screen. 